from the book of Acts in chapter 19. This is the continuing account of the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. Reading 19 verses 8 through the end of the chapter and just a sentence in chapter 20. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. And some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That's the Christian faith, they called it. The way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. So he called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples, wisely, would not let him. 
Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Man of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger today of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. About 2,000 years ago, in a land far, far away, there was a city. And in this city... Economics was a significant driving force. And when some of the citizens' income was threatened, they tried to rally the city to their cause and prompt a public outcry, using, of course, some other valued principle as a rallying cry, because after all, it's not about the money. The city was marked by preoccupation with sex and with sensuality. The city had a culture of great spirituality, not Christianity, but spirituality. Now, I know there are no such cities today, and you find it hard to believe, but once upon a time, there was such a city. Now, what would it take to transform such a city? Okay, we Christians are fond of saying that the gospel transforms. Well, how does it do that? How does the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward in a transformational way in a city, maybe even in our city? For that matter, how is a church transformed or even individual transformed, like me, like you? You might feel today that you need further transformation. You might be thinking of someone that you know, a coworker, a family member, who you know needs the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might this morning have an urgent desire to see a church, your church, transformed to a new level of health and effectiveness. And I think that cities are transformed by transformed churches and that churches are transformed by transformed people. And how are people transformed? I think that's the question before us today. And we have a picture in Acts 19 of the events that lead to the transformation of a city, Ephesus. 
Now, a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was the leading city in the Roman province of Asia that had Greece to the west and Galatia to the east on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus was a major, major commercial crossroads between Greece and Rome to the west and Syria and Palestine and other points east. And as with all such cities, it was very cosmopolitan. People came from all over the Roman world to come to and to pass through Ephesus, to live, to trade, to worship, to sightsee. Because Ephesus was home to the great temple of the, the goddess that the Greeks called Artemis and that the Romans called Diana. And her temple was a stunningly beautiful temple made of marble adorned with statues of gold and silver. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis was a goddess whose portfolio included fertility. And so her worship involved the use of sex and the use of temple prostitution. Artemis was the heart of a brisk tourism industry. And sales of little statues of Artemis brought a good living to a large number of silversmiths and other craftsmen. So the economy of Ephesus was driven by the twin engines of commerce and the worship of Artemis. So you have a religion revolving around sex in a major trade center with a population made up of people from all over the Roman world. Now, we've heard this description before in Acts. Antioch and Corinth were the same kinds of city. But to all of this, Ephesus, Ephesus added uh, a strong, a large contingent of practitioners of magic and of the occult. So to this city comes the Apostle Paul. He'd stopped here almost a year earlier on his way home, just establishing a bit of a Christian presence briefly. And last week, we looked at the early verses of chapter 19, his encounter with 12 disciples on his return. And then we come to the text for today. And we read right away that he stayed there after that for three months, reasoning in the Jewish synagogues, as he always did. And as they always did, the Jews rejected the message. And so Paul, as he always did after, directed his efforts to the Gentiles, and that changed the city. Now we've asked the question, how does the ministry of the gospel move forward in such a way as to bring transformation to a city and to a church and to an individual. I want to take you back just a little bit to the beginning of Jesus' own ministry. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us a day in the life of Jesus, very early in his ministry. And as we kind of job shadow Jesus for this 24-hour period, we see a pattern of what is going to be Jesus' whole ministry. He teaches in the synagogue with great authority. He casts out a demon. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and spends half the night doing more healing and more demon casting. And then very early the next morning, while it was still dark, he gets up and goes off to a solitary place, and there he spends some time with God his Father in prayer. And as he comes out of that prayer time, then he moves on and starts a process again, going to town after town, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
So you have preaching or teaching. You have miracles or acts of God, healing, casting out demons. And you have prayer. Those three elements in Jesus' ministry. And as you read on, that's what you see occurring over and over again. Now, for example, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus summons together all the crowds of people who've been swarming around him and following. And out of that group, he calls to himself 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him. And I think that's what prayer is essentially for us. It's intentional time with God. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And he gave them authority over the demons. So Jesus clearly expected them to engage in the same kind of activities, the same kind of ministry that he was doing. In the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, out of the context of prayer, you see supernatural manifestations of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, flames of fire. And then Peter preaches with power. 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, in a time of threatened persecution, the church gathers to pray, and what they pray for is boldness to speak, and they ask God to confirm their teaching by performing acts of power and healing people in the name of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, whose letters are riddled with references to his prayers for the church, says we preach Christ crucified, but he also says that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words or plausible words of wisdom, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power. So you have prayer, you have, you have preaching, teaching, proclamation. You have manifestations of the power of God. Healing, casting out demons, other signs. That is how the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ moves forward. Now, that's pretty instructive to us, I think. In the North American church culture, the two most emphasized aspects of church growth and health are, I think, music, have a great band, and programs, something for everyone. But maybe the best strategy for cultivating health and effectiveness in a church might also be the least complicated strategy. Solid biblical instruction and teaching, proclamation, a vital experience of God in prayer in which we actually encounter God, and the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. So maybe Jesus was onto something when he began his ministry. So when the gospel then comes to Ephesus, what do you think we might expect to see there? Well, in verses 8 to 10, we've already seen and read Paul's ministry of proclamation. He spoke in the synagogue. He reasoned in the public hall. And then verse 10 is an especially astounding summary statement of the effect of Paul's preaching ministry. It says it's continued for two years so that all the residents, not just of Ephesus, but all of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I've often heard it said, and maybe you have too, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And you've heard me say this before, but it is impossible to preach the gospel without words. It can be lived out, it can be demonstrated, but it cannot be preached. 
For the gospel in Scripture is always something that is preached. It is proclaimed. The gospel, by definition, is news. It is the word of the Lord concerning Jesus. And the ministry of the church in Acts is a ministry of the word. It is preached, it is proclaimed, it is taught, it is reasoned from the scriptures. The word of God prevails, the word of God increasing. Jesus as the Christ is proved from the scriptures, and so on. It is a ministry of the word. And the ministry of the church was and is, and I think must always be, the ministry of the word. And I'm not very sure that our churches today believe that. Think of evangelism. I'm not sure that we believe God when he says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How about for spiritual growth? Do we believe God when he says that the sacred writings or the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness? And in the formation of our character, do we really believe that we are made holy by the word? Jesus prayed once to his father, sanctify them, his followers, by your truth. Your word is truth. And sanctification is a word for the process of being made holy, being made to conform to the character of God. So do we preach to ourselves, as it were, by putting ourselves into and underneath the authority of the Scripture? Do we preach to ourselves by letting God's Word speak to us of Jesus and of ourselves in relation to Jesus? What is the place of God's Word in your life right now? This is not, by the way, an I have to sort of obligation. It's just Christians read the Bible. So I'm a Christian, I should read the Bible. That's not how it works. I don't eat, for example, because I'm a living creature and eating is just something that living creatures do. I eat because I know that it nourishes me. I eat because when I don't eat, I get hungry and my body tells me that I need it. And our souls are hungry for the Word of God. Only sometimes we're we're deadened to that hunger. And yet it's the word of God that nourishes our souls and fuels our knowledge of and hunger for Jesus. It's impossible to know Jesus and to deepen in faith and to mature in godly character without the scriptures. And if you feel spiritually dry today, if you feel sort of useless in the kingdom of God, the very first place that I would look is to your relationship with the scriptures. The kingdom of God only moves forward, even in our hearts, by the word of God. And as the word of God transforms us, so it can transform our homes. Parents, do we believe that the word of God can save and mature and make holy our children? And our teaching of our children is the word of God a player in that. And then as we are transformed by the word, do we understand then that our church will be transformed by the word of God, by God's testimony concerning Jesus Christ? We call that the gospel. And I mean through preaching, but not just that. 
in our small groups, in our leadership meeting, in my visitation and your visitation, in all of our teaching ministry. In all of these ways and places, the Word of God is the means by which God transforms people and transforms churches. And only people in churches who are transformed by the Word can transform a city by that same word. So again, the ministry of the church is, more than anything else, a ministry of the word. And so it was in the book of Acts. And in a world without media, as people came and went from Ephesus, the word of the Lord radiated, out, radiated outward to the whole province of Asia Minor, catalyzed primarily by the preaching ministry and the teaching ministry of Paul. But preaching is not the only thing happening. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. So you have preaching accompanied by signs, miracles, demonstrations of God's power. And those miracles bore witness to the fact that what was being said about Jesus was true. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Chapter 3 of Acts, the healing of the crippled man. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Now many wonders and signs were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Chapter 9, the healing of paralyzed Aeneas and even the raising of the dead, Tabitha. And Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost Day, told the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, you, you saw them, you know this. In other words, the miracles that God did proved to you that his testimony, Jesus' testimony about himself as the Son of God, as being one with the Father, was true. And so the miracles happening either in the personal ministry of Jesus or later accompanying the proclamation of God's word concerning Jesus, these miracles showed that the kingdom of God that was being preached was centered in Jesus. Now, of course, we have to pause here and consider what becomes for us the obvious question. If preaching and signs of God's power occur together in the Jesus-focused ministry of the church, why don't we see more of these kinds of things today? That's what you would expect, right? I'm going to disappoint you by saying I can't give a definitive answer to that question. But I want to offer a few thoughts. And this is Ken, not the Scripture. But these thoughts help me. First of all, I should say that I do not believe, as some do, that the age of miracles kind of came to a close at the end of the New Testament age, the ministry of the first apostles. I don't believe that. I also think that there are a few dynamics at play when we think about God's acting with signs of power. One of them is the fact, I think, that most Christians are 
We're not sensitive to God's voice. We're not able to discern when God wants to use us as his agents of healing. I'm not sure that we cultivate the sensitivity to his voice so that when he says, I'm going to heal this person, that we know. Or if he says, I'm not going to heal this person, but this has to do with reconciling a relationship or forming trust in their hearts, whatever. We, we think don't know what God is doing, and so we don't know how to pray. I also think that we as Christians tend to think of God's healing, for example, in terms of one of God's favors and blessings to us, and that we don't think of it typically as a visible witness to the world. But in Acts, the miracles were always there so that the non-believing public would come to follow Jesus. It was never just that Christians would be rescued from sickness. But I think that the most likely answer to the question, why don't we see more miracles, has to do with how God effectively backs up the gospel in our culture itself. The first century world if they saw God acting in power and they saw a miracle, they would know immediately that God had acted. But our culture is not like that. Our culture could see a miracle but not conclude that God had acted. If they see a miraculous recovery from illness, it would cause an amazed, I don't understand it, I can't explain it, comment, but it almost certainly would not lead to a real consideration of Jesus. Sometimes it would, but most often it wouldn't. Speaking in tongues is considered a bizarre religious phenomenon, and outside the church it's more likely to cause people to dismiss Christians than to embrace Christ. I think that the, the idea of demon possession is thought about in psychological terms, not spiritual terms. So simply put, miracles as a demonstration to a non-Christian culture a demonstration of the truth of the gospel, I think it just wouldn't work here. So I suspect that God doesn't do very much of that kind of thing here. He does it in other places in the world. Lots of good evidence for that. But I'm not sure that he does it a lot here. I think he would do it more if we were paying attention. But I think he doesn't do much of it here. So if miracles don't demonstrate the truth of the church's proclamation of the gospel in our context, what would? How would God's power be evident here in such a way as to make people take seriously our claims concerning Jesus Christ? I would suggest that things like transformed lives, less anger and more active love toward people, unity among Christians, Perhaps if Christians were unmistakably more joyful, more honest, stronger in adversity, more caring, what if we were the most committed people on the planet to alleviating poverty and freeing people from slavery? What if we were more gentle, more generous, more active in serving our community? What if we were less enslaved to material things? What if we were more lovingly committed to our marriages? What if we were obviously and visibly different from everyone else? This is the power of God in us. And could it be that when people see these things, and know that we link it all directly to the gospel of Christ, 
the Christ that we preach and the Lord that we love, could it be that when they see these things, they might be led to believe the gospel that we preach and to love the Lord that we love? I think our lives are much more powerful in terms of letting credibility to the truth of Christ than signs and wonders. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that I don't think it's something we have to work hard at. This is not God's obligatory to-do list for us. I think it is, to use a biblical word, fruit. When the Word of God transforms us, this is what it transforms us into. When God, through His Word, grips us so that we are enamored with God's grace and enamored with Jesus through whom this grace has come to us, then God will inevitably form that kind of life in us. It's the power of God at work in us and through us to the world. In this kind of life, God will be present in such a way as to prove the gospel to the world around us. Or, more simply put, when our words and our lives proclaim that Jesus is Savior and Lord, God will act to convict people that it's true. That's what happened in Acts 2 and 5 and 8 and 9 and here in 19. In Ephesus, God performed many miracles through Paul as he preached Christ. God's power showed up in the way that was needed there and then as Paul proclaimed Christ. Even if people, I love this, even if people touched hankies or aprons that Paul had used in his trade as a tent maker, they were healed and demons came out of people. Now, of course, in a city where the occult and sorcery were common, this would have looked to everybody like magic. And so some spiritual practitioners tried to duplicate Paul's tricks and found out the hard way that it wasn't just magic. Some Jewish exorcists considered the name of Jesus to, to, Jesus to be some kind of magic word, and they tried to use it then in their exorcisms, invoking the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest who were doing this, and it went horribly wrong. They tried to invoke Jesus' name in the same way over a demon that had possessed a man, but the demon said, as we read, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Somebody has said, like handling an unfamiliar weapon, it went off in their hands. And those who had witnessed that episode spread the story like wildfire until the whole city knew it. Then, naturally, fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled, which means both honored and talked about. And I imagine that people after that probably flocked to hear Paul's teaching. These men had tried to use the power of Jesus to serve their own ends without being themselves servants of Jesus. They took the Lord's name in vain by invoking his name with no thought to his glory, but only their own glory. They sought to identify themselves with Jesus without ever, to use Mark's words again, being with Jesus. And that is not an ancient issue. That can happen in the church. 
using Jesus' name to market our books, to get people to attend our conferences, to sell out our concerts. It can happen in the local church. I can stand here and preach with a greater desire to impress than to honor God. I've often been thankful after the fact for Philippians 1.18, which says, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. I can easily and sometimes do preach with false motives. We can seek to elevate our own particular ministry to prominence and even consider it indispensable to the church. We can seek leadership in order to exercise control. We can engage in lots of ministry so that people will admire our commitment to the church. And at the last day, Jesus said, there will be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to him, he said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. How about that? To speak Jesus' name without proclaiming his glory, to try to produce Jesus on demand out of our magic hat, to attach his name to our religious activity without having been with him is not only, apparently, it's not only useless, it leads to one's destruction. And how unlike this is Paul. Paul was surrendered to Jesus. Paul placed himself entirely at God's disposal in order that Jesus might be glorified. Paul was a man of prayer who recognized God's voice, considered the knowledge of Jesus the greatest thing in his life. Paul gave his whole life to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to the point of profound persecution, and he later wrote to the Ephesians that he considered that God's gift to him. In short, the seven sons of Sceva did not know the name, did not know the Jesus whose name they used. Paul knew Jesus. Paul was a servant of the gospel of Jesus. He lived under the authority of gospel of Jesus. Paul gave his life in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And the power of God then was on Paul. It acted through Paul. And what was the result of that then? It's interesting that the two episodes that Luke includes to reflect the impact of the gospel in Ephesus are both concerned with money personal finances, and the community economy. And our culture, as you know, is money-centered. And it's natural that the gospel, when it takes root, will have a financial impact. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. It's two simple tests for you this morning to see if money has power over you. One, what are your giving habits? Are you, are you generous? And second, just to ask yourself, do I have everything that I need, but I'm afraid that someday I won't? Worry over money is a sure sign of its power over you. Look at verses 18 and 19 and 20. When the name of Jesus was now extolled or reverence talked about, one of the ripple effects was that many who practiced the magic arts renounced their sins and turned to Jesus. But it wasn't just a question of an internal faith. It had a very concrete and outward expression. 
They built a bonfire in which they publicly burned all of their scrolls and papers. The total value of the scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. So you have 50,000 of those. 50,000 days of work. So let's say 300 work days in a year. That's 160 work years. In our terms, let's say a $45,000 salary. We're talking $7.5 million. So you can imagine the stir that this would have been ca- that this would have caused a public demonstration of their rejection of one lifestyle and embracing Jesus Christ to the tune of seven and a half million dollars. Their attitude toward their money, their income, changed. Does your attitude toward money reflect the gospel in your life? Not asking if you buy frivolous things, but is your money, is your spending, are your values around money under the lordship of Jesus? Again, what's your generosity quotient? What's your level of worry versus peace financially? Could you hold your finances loosely? Because if money is our culture's main rival for God when it comes to the throne of our lives then to be a believer in Jesus will inevitably impact our relationship to money, as it did in Ephesus. And Luke adds now at this point the comment that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily after this public demonstration of change. The advance of the word of God continued unabated. Now, when an individual's attitude towards money changes it will inevitably affect the wider community, the wider economy. So the last episode in chapter 19. Near the end of Paul's stay in Ephesus, the inherent conflict between the Christian gospel and the religion of Ephesus came to a head. As the reality of Jesus Christ impacted a larger and larger number of the Ephesians, the commerce built around the temple of Artemis, the commerce built around the worship of her, began to suffer. Fewer and fewer people came to the souvenir shops. Fewer and fewer people were buying the little idols that so many of the craftsmen and silversmiths in Ephesus were making their living by. There's a significant impact on the bottom line for many businessmen. Now, there's not much even in our own day that will rile us up more quickly than some policy or practice that means less money in our pocket. So a silversmith named Demetrius called a meeting of the city's craftsmen and tradesmen, and notice how he frames this in financial terms. And only secondarily does he appeal to religious devotion. This is what he says. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in also Uh, In almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
And at this, the great crowd of tradesmen began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And before long, they took their demonstration to the streets, whipped the whole city into an uproar. A mob of loyal Artemis worshipers formed, grabbed two of Paul's friends, rushed into the theater. Paul wanted to address the crowd, but they wouldn't let him. And even as is often true in a mob mentality, many people didn't even know why they were there. And for two hours, they just shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then, in what I think is almost a comical scene, considering the intensity of the last couple hours, the town clerk got the attention of the crowd and said, Look, the whole world knows that we are guardians of the temple of Artemis and of her image, so let's not do anything stupid. These men you're complaining about haven't actually committed a crime. So if you have a complaint, take it to the proper channels. We've got courts and officials. We're in danger now of being charged with rioting, so break it up and go home. And so they did. And that was it. And when Paul had first come to Ephesus, the life of the city was defined by the worship of Artemis as both the religious and the financial hub of the city and defined by the widespread practice of the occult and the magic arts. Then came the gospel of Jesus from the mouth of one whose own life had been transformed by Jesus and who knew and loved Jesus. And God himself affirmed Paul's preaching by performing miraculous acts, not performance demonstrations. Ephesus has got talent. But miracles that brought life and goodness Healing, freedom from demons, life and goodness, the kingdom of God. God, through Paul, declared that the kingdom, with Jesus at the center, is both greater and better than the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of magic and religious superstition, the kingdom of the worship of Artemis and false gods, the kingdom of money and of greed. Those kingdoms enslaved, they were dark, The gospel of Jesus is good news. It's practical. It's tangible. It's visible good news. And it transformed a city. And the city was transformed as the fledgling church grew. And the church was born when individuals were transformed by the word of God. And the transformation of these individuals was catalyzed simply by a man who knew Jesus and proclaimed the truth concerning Jesus, and that is still how it works. Proclamation of the word of God out of the context of prayer or knowing or being with God leads to the transformation of a person, transformed people transforming a church, and transformed churches transforming a city and a nation, even a world. Your transformation by the word of God, reshaped life and character, your transformation and mine transforming our church and transform churches changing our city. The power of God present with the people of God who know God and speak the word of God concerning Jesus to those around them. Or called to be with Jesus called to preach the gospel, to be his witnesses. And out of those two things, or with those two things, God acts. And that is how transformation happens in your heart, first of all, and here, 
and then around us as well. Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is living and active. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of people. And our prayer this morning is that you will remind us and help us to understand the power and living nature of your word. I pray that you will draw us into prayer, into being with you, that the gospel will take root and change us, and that our church will reflect that, and that our church then will be a part of what it is you want to do in the world. In short, we pray for your transforming of us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning now we gather around the table and remember and celebrate uh, the gospel, the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for us, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might receive a new life. We remember our own transformation, and we may want to meditate on that this morning. I invite the deacons to come now.